You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journey here at UVic. All right, welcome to Beyond the Jargon. I'm your host today, Liz MacArthur, and joining me in the studio as my guest for this episode is Alyssa McLeod. Hi, Alyssa. Thank you for being here. Hi, Liz. Now, you are a graduate student in the humanities, and hmm, I don't know how to phrase exactly what you do, except that I know that you study something to do with medieval literature. Yes, I, uh, I focus on both medieval literature and this branch of English literary studies called the digital humanities, which essentially means I use computers to study texts. Interesting. Uh, it kind of, to me, seems like a bit of a contradiction that you study medieval uh, literature, but you also study digital humanities. Do you study digital humanities or do you just use digital methods to study medieval literature? That's actually a very complicated question. <laughs> um, a lot of people, uh, one of the, the big critiques of the digital humanities is that it is essentially a set of tools to study literature and that it shouldn't be a discipline unto itself. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I studied, I did my undergraduate degree in medieval studies and I focused almost entirely on medieval literature. And in my graduate degree, I kind of wanted to professionalize myself and my research a little bit. So I undertook digital humanities out of interest, but also because I wanted to be employed. Mm-hmm. And so um, for me, I think there has been a lot of overlap between medieval studies and digital humanities. And I have used digital tools to study medieval literature, but I'm also interested in the discipline of digital humanities in its own sake. Hmm. What do you mean by professionalize yourself? Well, um, and this is, again, this is this is kind of a, a an issue in English graduate programs specifically. Um, if you're getting a, a master's degree in the humanities, for example, which is what I'm doing, uh, if you don't want to get a PhD, then what do you do with your degree afterward? Because essentially a lot of master's programs are training you to become excellent writers, excellent researchers, and excellent debaters, but that those are skills that don't necessarily directly transfer to the classroom. Um, one of the benefits of the digital humanities is that you can graduate with a set of coding skills, which are in high demand in the workplace right now, HTML, CSS, XML, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And also you can get hands-on experience in a lab environment, which is what I was able to do as a research assistant. Uh, So you do have a bit of an advantage over someone who might have focused on reading books and writing essays, which are skills that are incredibly important in my opinion, but employers may not necessarily think so. and so the the skills that you gained from working in the digital humanities lab, were they directly applicable into your professional life? Did you wind up getting employed because of them? Well, actually, I did. Um, I'm actually finishing up a so it, and it, it's 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 been it's overlapped with my graduate degree. I I was employed full time at the Royal BC Museum as a web developer there, um, and I spent a large portion of my master's working as a research assistant in the electronical, uh, electronic textual cultures laboratory uh, with Ray Siemens. And that's where I learned how to code and write XML, HTML, CSS. And so I was hired as a web developer after that. And I didn't necessarily have all of the skills that I needed in that position. I learned a lot on the spot, mm-hmm. but I did have I, I guess I, I, I guess I uh, had shown that I was capable of learning programming languages. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and for me, it's actually interesting because I became interested in programming at the same time that I started to learn Latin in my undergraduate um, <laughs> because I found that it kind of used the same part of my brain. Um, translating Latin is really, really similar to writing HTML. Wow. For some bizarre reason. Really? In, in, in my that, opinion, it is. <laughs> in the way in which they, you do it particularly? Yeah. That's interesting. Maybe. Well, I guess it's they're programming languages, so it is using the language part of your brain, I would imagine. Yeah, um, probably. Yeah, mm. you're definitely right. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's start. I want to go back a little bit. You did your undergraduate in medieval studies. Where did you do that, and why did you start doing that? What got you interested in doing medieval studies? Um, so I did my undergraduate degree in medieval, medieval studies at the University of Toronto, um, and I started out just studying English literature, and I took a, a, tr- a course in my third year on Chaucer, and I completely, completely, completely fell in love with him and mm. never wanted to read anything else, and I didn't mm. for a while. Um, and so I complete, I transferred over to medieval studies then, and I, it's an interdisciplinary program at the University of Toronto, which means that you can study um, literature, philosophy, theology, history, etc., etc., all kind of in one go, which is one of the reasons I was attracted to the program. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and what is so attractive about medieval studies to you? Why do you like it so much? Well, yeah, again, I like that it's it's actually quite interdisciplinary. Um, yeah. And I think one of the reasons is because medieval English literature is essentially the, it sounds really silly to say, but it's essentially the oldest English literature you can read that's still in English. Um, Mm -hmm. If you read Chaucer, for example, who wrote the Canterbury Tales, you don't really need to translate it. It's pretty straightforward, but it's basically as old as you can get without translating it. And so to to study literature that, you know, was written that long ago in the 1300s, you really need, I think, more historical and religious context than you might need for something that was written in 1800, Mm -hmm. Um, just because it's a time period very different from our own. And... um, we don't necessarily have the same values that uh, were held in medieval England. Hmm. So it requires a little bit more context. Mm-hmm. That's interesting what you're talking about the values of uh, the medieval period and mm-hmm. now. I think, I don't know, I think we view anything that is older than our current times as something more pious and something more like uh, they were much more straight-laced. But when you look back at history, that's often not the case. I think especially with medieval times, <laughs> yes. they were not more <laughs> pious and they weren't more straight-laced. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, like, there are texts with funny little, like, I don't know, um, I can't think of, like, vulgar things in it that yes. you don't see in, like, literature and the arts today, which I find quite interesting. Definitely. Oh, for sure. And, I mean, I'm, I kind of fudged my version of falling in love with Chaucer. One of the reasons I really became enamored of medieval literature is because when I was reading the Canterbury Tales, there's a specific, well, I mean, a lot of the Canterbury Tales are really dirty. There are a lot of fart jokes. Um, (laughs) there's a lot of, um, questionable moral and ethical behavior. Um, and even medieval manuscripts are illustrated with the most obscene images you can possibly think of. (laughs) Think of, yes, anyway. Oh, no, give us an example. Oh, well, I mean, you'll, you'll see pictures of, uh, oh, it's so, it's really dirty. (laughs) (laughs) You'll see pictures, um, monks really like to draw really liked to illustrate pictures of naked people, animals doing interesting things to each other. Hmm. Um, I found a friend sent me a manuscript image of a horse licking another horse's behind um, (laughs) in a reclining position on a bed. Um, (laughs) 
It was weird. It was a fun time period. <laughs> what inspired, like, you're talking about monks doing this. What mm-hmm. inspired the sort of weird, vulgar illustrations to go along with this stuff? Do you know? I think they were bored. Yeah. <laughs> but I also think that that's what the human, that's how the human mind works. And mm-hmm. maybe in that time period, um, they didn't necessarily have the... They weren't as squeamish as we are now, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, I also kind of think that a lot of monasteries were boys' clubs, and you get those kind of jokes mm-hmm. in those kind of environments. So, <laughs> after your um, after your undergrad, you went on to do your masters. Uh, was there any break in between there? Or did you continue straight from uh, the University of Toronto? I I took a year off mm-hmm. in between my undergraduate and my master's degree, uh, and I worked as a receptionist, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was. It, it motivated me to go back to school, right? For sure. Yes. <laughs> in that time, were you sort of? Did you know what you wanted to do when you went back to grad school? Did you have a real strong focus at first, or was this sort of a process of discovering what you actually wanted to pursue in, you know, your post undergrad mm-hmm. studies? Um, I actually started out. I knew that I wanted to study medieval literature, but my focus on the digital humanities didn't come until that year in between my undergraduate and my master's degrees. And I think it's because um, just the process of applying to graduate school and applying um, for the awards that one applies to when one lives in Canada. So um, the big one, and I I did my undergraduate degree in Ontario. So there's the Ontario Graduate Scholarship that you apply for and also the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Award. Um, so you apply to those in the fall, kind of, and um, in the process of applying for those awards, I was communicating with previous professors, and actually, I ended up getting a research position through that communication hmm. um, for a project called the Lexicons of Early Modern English, which is based at the University of Toronto with Professor Ian Lancashire, and so I was able to kind of, that's when I started to, I actually got to encode a 17th century medical dictionary, um, which he uploaded onto his website. It's essentially a database of 17th century or early modern lexicons in general. Hmm. And so I just thought it was really fun. A mm-hmm. and coding is really really fun. I so when you talk about uh, encoding this mm-hmm. uh, lexicon, what um, what does that mean? Um, so it's not so when you encode a text um, in the digital humanities, it's it's called markup, descriptive markup. Mm-hmm. And it essentially is a way of identifying certain features within a text automatically. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I were, this is what I remember from that particular job, I was encoding a dictionary. And so I would put two little, I would put um, two little frames around the word being defined, two little words, just to show that that was the, the definitional word. And then another marker to mark the definition, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, if you encode a poem, for example, you might put little tags around every metaphor, every time the poet uses a metaphor. And that's just so a computer can go through afterward and pull all of those tags and count them and quantify them. Hmm. Yeah. And are you talking about putting this on uh, on PDFs or of scanned documents? Hmm. Actually, um, we started with PDFs, mm-hmm. um, but I had to OCR. So I'm trying not to use jargony words. <laughs> OCR them. OCR basically means turning um, a scanned document into a text file. Right. And then you add the layers of code into the text directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So would it be visible to someone who is just looking at it, or it's just so that it's machine readable? It's basically just till it's mach- so it's machine readable, but. The good thing about using a lot of um, descriptive markup, like XML is the big one, for example, which, you know, 
yeah, XML. And <laughs> it stands for it now. Um, and I mean, the good thing about it is that it's it's highly shareable and diverse. And so most uh, databases that use XML will actually share the XML directly with its users. Mm. Um, so you can actually see um, the person's uh, thought process that's going into making the product. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, once you did the encoding mm -hmm. in the lab, what happens to the information or that the that can be generated from it? So mm. if it's counting metaphors or if it's looking at definitions, where does that information help the department, I guess? Um, so it depends on what the researcher is or who the, I should say who the researcher is. Um, so some, I have a friend who's really interested in looking at gendered language. And so what she does is she counts the, the number of he's and she's and she compares those, hmm. um, which is really, really interesting. She studies Canadian poetry. Um, so that's something that you can do. Um, I, I actually last semester, so in the fall of 2012, I was working on a medieval text called The Siege of Jerusalem. Um, it was written in the late 14th century. It's alliterative, which means that some kinds of medieval poetry, they don't rhyme. It's just that most of the words on each line will start with the same letter. Hmm. It's very interesting. It's a dated, it, it's not in use anymore, but I think that we should bring it back. <laughs> um, so this particular poem is incredibly controversial. Um, it's quite racist and mm. it's uh, very, 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 very violent. And it's only recently begun to be studied because of those reasons. And it's, it's a really, it's a difficult read. Um, but what I did is I encoded the first, the, the prologue and part of the first section um, with markers to describe the, the different kinds of time that are running throughout mm. the poem. So in a lot of medieval poetry, um, you'll kind of have this, this biblical timeline. So um, the poem will be very conscious of biblical events mm. running alongside historical human history. And, but they function very differently. And, and of, often God is a, is a presence in the poem, and so God's time works different than humanity's time, which works different from biblical time, differently from biblical time. So I used XML to um, kind of trace these three or four different kinds of time throughout the poem, and then what I did is I took the XML and converted it into another language and made it into an actual interactive timeline. Mm -hmm. So, but the good thing about XML is that that raw data will always be there. So if someone looks at my timeline and says, this doesn't make any sense, I can show them my research behind it quite easily. Hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like the the digital humanities aspect of your research really enhances what you are able to do. I mean, I guess you could go through manually these documents and mm -hmm. do what you're doing, but this seems like it's going to allow people to sort of um, more rapidly reach these conclusions, which might lead to, you know, better research, more research happening, you know, if you don't have to spend all that time going through something For manually. sure. And I think it's a really, the digital humanities can provide a really amazing pedagogical tools. So the timeline that I made, for example, it's very much a beta product, but um, a lot of people are visual learners, including myself, and um, something as inaccessible as medieval poetry I shouldn't say it's inaccessible, but it is for a lot of people. Um, anything that makes that easier to process, I think, is amazing. Hmm. Um, were you involved, or you must have been, you were talking about being involved in the, uh, <laughs> the Digital Humanities Lab here at UVic, and yes. was that where you uh, were working on the Siege of Jerusalem? No, that was my own, that was my own project. Oh, yeah, okay. um, I was actually working with the Electronic Textual Cultures Laboratory, and mm -hmm. we were working, I was helping out with the Devonshire Manuscript, which is, they release 
um, Dr. Stevens and the rest of the lab released it last spring, um, a Wikibooks based edition of an early Tudor manuscript. So it was published hmm. on Wikibooks. And is similar to what you were doing with the encoding there, or what does explain the electronic textuals lab? Te I don't even know what it is. <laughs> okay, well, it's a research lab um, located right here on Uvic campus, mm -hmm. um, and it's headed by Dr. Ray Siemens, who is a faculty member in the English department and the computer science department. Um, and when I was there, he was basically, I think it was actually his dissertation and plus 10 years of work plus us. And so he essentially made a critical edition of this manuscript called the Devonshire Manuscript. It's a Tudor manuscript. And um, it's it had never really been released in a critical edition before. Hmm. And so we put it on Wikibooks. And so the coding aspect of it, if you find that interesting, um, it was coded in XML mm -hmm. five or six years ago. It's a, it's a huge project. A lot of different people worked on it. And then... Tr um, transformed into wiki code because mm -hmm. if you ever if you look at the back end of a wikipedia or a wiki books mm -hmm. article um it's kind of weird code with a lot of square brackets it looks kind of like html but it's, it's its own special code um which makes it easier for everyone to learn how to do it mm -hmm. so we transformed the xml into wiki code and then we put it all up on wikibooks huh and what is wikibooks if somebody doesn't know it's kind of like, so Wikipedia actually has a lot of related sites, and Wikibooks is one of them. Wikisource is another, Wikimedia Commons, et cetera, et cetera. Wikibooks is specifically for books. <laughs> um, so a lot of it is, is actually open source material. If you go on Wikibooks, you'll find a, a lot of textbooks, Oh, which is, I think that's interesting. Um, and also cookbooks, pretty oh. common on Wiki, Wikibooks. Um, and then, yeah, open source critical editions, hmm. that kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah. Um, did you expect when you uh, when you started out doing your masters? Mm -hmm. um, you did it, I guess, with the intention that you were going to be involved in digital humanities. Did you expect that um, you would be so involved, or that it would um, inform your work so much, or or more or less? Uh, no, I don't think I expect to be as in, expected to be as involved in it as I became. I definitely didn't expect to become a web developer. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit of a surprise to me and everyone who knew me before I started my masters. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I think that I just really enjoyed the the process of feeling as if I was actually creating something mm -hmm. in the course of my research because I think a lot of the time the humanities we can become quite isolated because we go home and we read books and we think about them alone and then we write essays alone at three in the morning <laughs> in our basement apartment <laughs> in the dark. <laughs> um, and so the experience of working in a lab and, and now even the experience of working kind of in a collaborative lab environment in, in at the Royal BC Museum, I... Uh, it's just, it's nicer, it's more social, and you're actually creating something that you can show to other people. People will do not read the papers that you write in graduate school. I mean, my parents would never anyway. <laughs> and so, but if I can show them something that I made that's on the computer, mm -hmm. um, they're more likely to read it and show their friends. And I think it's a, it's a more crowd-friendly form of displaying your research. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I actually think that that's more in line with the way that people think and learn. Hmm. Are you going to continue on? Uh, would you pursue PhD? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of want to, maybe. Um, that's the age-old question. Mm. I think 
in graduate school and in the program that I did, uh, we were as a group highly discouraged from pursuing a PhD because the job prospects right now are quite brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently they're slightly better in medieval studies. Oh. So <laughs> that's comforting. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure yet. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure yet. I have no idea. I change my mind every day. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. You talked a bit about um, the surprise of becoming a web developer. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems very far removed from medieval studies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are there, um, I don't know, I gotta think about what I'm trying to ask here. Are you going to stay in that field, do you think? Or would you, like, are you happy as a web developer? And is that, like, a good outcome from the years and years of school that you have done so far? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't, I know for my own career, I don't want to remain a only a web developer. I really enjoy coding and I really enjoy creating, but I don't want it to be the only thing that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, the position that I'm in now, I also got to write an article about, developing website which I'm presenting with my supervisor next week um, in Portland which is also fun mm-hmm. uh, so I really like I think being a web developer in a kind of public knowledge environment like the museum is amazing because you don't only have to do one thing it also involves a lot of thought not that web development doesn't involve a lot of thought but I think just the critical thinking aspect um, of my work is really important to me especially after graduate school because it kind mm-hmm. of just makes you over question everything mm-hmm. what are the sexist implications of the code that i'm writing right now <laughs> think about that a lot actually so, <laughs> interesting um, what uh, what are the sexist what that seems like i don't know how that would even be mm, uh, a that's thing. more of an issue in xml actually uh-huh. um xml you can actually encode gender and um male the, the the code for the male gender is number one and for the female gender is number two. Oh, and what does that mean encoding gender um so if you were marking the code of a speaker in a poem or something like that mm-hmm. yeah oh but i wouldn't quote me on that that that's not work that i do in xml actually <laughs> <laughs> double check on that for you um yeah so i know i really enjoy web development and i want to do something related to that but mm-hmm. Um, museum work is really amazing and mm-hmm. fascinating, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I, I kind of feel a little bit more comfortable being involved in that than I did in graduate school, just because I feel like the work that that, ha- that occurs in a museum it is very research-oriented, but it's research-oriented um, explicitly for public knowledge, mm-hmm. I guess. And so um, all the work that happens at the museum is there to enrich the lives of everyone who lives in the city or in this province or in this country. Um, whereas in graduate school, I mean, that is definitely true to, to, the, to an extent. Um, but I was always haunted by the fact that the poem I was reading, no one else would read or care that I read or might even be horrified that I read. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yes. you've uh, you've talked about the isolation of being in the humanities, and you're not the first person that's talked about that, about being in the humanities mm-hmm. and feeling isolated, about <laughs> thinking about books they've read and mm-hmm. writing papers alone in the middle of the night. Um, do you think, I don't know, is that a problem? Do you think that deters people from studying in these fields? And what is it like to be, <laughs> to be lonely like that, and how do you try and... Um, yeah, my first semester of my master's, when it's at the end of the semester, it was early December, and I was writing all of these papers, and I was about to go back to Ontario to see all my family, and I only had three more days to hold out, and I, 
I just remember waking up and like not being able to get out of bed, (laughs) (laughs) just not being able to function. It's just crazy. I mean, it gets really, you just have to be, I think, really conscious of your mental health um, Mm -hmm. because, and I I actually do think it's not just the stress. I think it is the isolation and the feeling Mm -hmm. that you can't really share that with anyone else, which is odd because the graduate programs at UVic in general are very tight knit and close and you make a lot of really good friends, but there's something about that kind of work, I think, that makes it a lot harder to, to reach out to people about what you're doing. Um, so yeah, it can definitely take, and take a toll on your, your life mm-hmm. unless you are quite conscious of things like seeing friends or exercising or eating well. And so I, I think it's just, you need to be quite conscious about life balance, which is true about nine to five work as well. But I think if your nine to five work involves being completely isolated, you just need to take steps to make sure mm-hmm. that the rest of your your life kind of balances it out. And is it the difference between being able to sit down and have like a really in-depth conversation with someone about a particular thing that you're studying without, you know, and them totally understanding what you're talking about? Or mm-hmm. is it because the things that you study aren't necessarily something that a lot of people in, in the tight-knit graduate student group mm-hmm. are studying as well? Is that sort of why it's so isolating? Yeah, I think a lot of it is just not being able to talk about what you're doing. Mm. And it's true, even, I mean, I, I don't really know how many students there are in the in UVic's English graduate program, but there aren't that many. Um, but even within that small group, everyone's doing things that are entirely different and everyone's really wrapped up in their own work. So mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to get into the nitty gritty details of what you do because everyone else is doing something equally interesting and challenging and also isolating. <laughs> so, yeah, I think having hobbies that are not school really goes a long way. What did you do then to uh, to promote mental health in those <laughs> isolating times? Um, well, at first, nothing at all, and that's why I was so stressed out. And then I started taking, I took swimming lessons. Oh, which yeah. Which actually really helped. I'm a really bad swimmer, <laughs> but it was, it was a nice weekly discipline Mm -hmm. um I started practicing yoga pretty frequently that really helps um people get annoyed with you if you talk about yoga all the time as well which I learned pretty quickly (laughs) (laughs) Um, um and it sounds silly but I think a lot of people come into the humanities because they love to read and research um and when you're really busy with school you forget that you actually love to do that and it's something that you used to do for fun Mm -hmm. and I found that if I made myself read for personal pleasure uh, once a day, right before I went to bed, even just a, a chapter of a book or something like that, it made a huge difference because it was just a nice reminder that I don't, I don't hate all literature anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I think, you know, I think that a lot of people, especially in an English program, feel that way. Mm. Um, they start to hate it. They start to hate it, and even when you know, I, I have friends when they finish their degrees in English literature, they don't read for six months because they just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hate to feel that, but I, I, I understand how it happens, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, we are unfortunately out of time, but I want to thank you for joining me today. This has been very enlightening and very interesting. <laughs> thank you, Liz. <laughs>